2 Kings chapter 1, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear and heed it. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was an hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of an hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, 
Forasmuch as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram reigned in his stead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to a repeating phrase that takes place throughout this chapter. It is found in verse 3 and in a couple other references uh, as well. And it is simply this question. Is it not because there is not a God in Israel? Was there no God in Israel? The prophet wanted to know. You would have thought that Ahaziah would have known better, wouldn't you? At long last, the sickly king had got what he wanted. Ever since his accident in which he had fallen through a lattice in his upper chamber, Ahaziah's condition must have gone from bad to worse. And then it evidently became bad enough to where he wondered if he would even survive from the accident. So what does he do? He sends messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see whether or not he'll live. His messengers, though, were interrupted by Elijah, who told them on behalf of Jehovah that because of his pursuit of false gods, he would die. Well, evidently, that only made Ahaziah angry, so that he determined to have Elijah arrested. And now at long last, Elijah had been taken into custody. We might wonder what Ahaziah hoped to gain by having Elijah arrested. He certainly resembled his father Ahab, who by now had died in battle by the word of the Lord. Ahab, you may recall from the earliest of our studies, evidently thought he could nullify God's word by apprehending Elijah when Elijah had told them there would be no rain upon the earth, but by his word. Unlike Ahaziah, Ahab never would find Elijah until the day that Elijah took the initiative to appear before him at the direction of the Lord. Ahaziah did succeed in arresting Elijah, but it certainly wasn't easy. In fact, it came at quite a high cost. Two captains with their bands of 50 soldiers had been consumed by fire, called down from heaven by Elijah. The third captain with his band of 50 would no doubt have suffered the same fate were it not for that captain falling on his knees and pleading with Elijah for mercy. 
<coughs> for his humble spirit and the respect that he showed Elijah, he and his band of 50 were spared, which led to Elijah allowing that captain of 50 to escort him into the presence of the king, who lay dying on a sickbed. I find it ironic that for all his trouble in apprehending Elijah, Ahaziah gained nothing from it. You could say it was a complete waste of time and a tragic loss of lives, because once in the presence of the king, all Elijah did was to simply repeat almost verbatim what the initial messengers who met up with him had told King Ahaziah after being turned back from their assignment of inquiring of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. And so we read, And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king, and he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Forasmuch as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. That's in verses 15 and 16, and it repeats nearly verbatim the very words that Elijah directed those messengers to take to the king. I'm inclined to think that Ahaziah probably died very shortly after Elijah announced his doom. So we read in verse 17, So he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. Had his days been prolonged at all, Elijah might have remained in custody. But we have no record of that. So what can we learn from this episode of Elijah calling down fire yet again twice? There are some preachers, you know, who take the view that Elijah had been put on the shelf, so to speak, after the Lord met him on Mount Horeb. You recall from earlier studies how discouraged the prophet was when once he had received the threat from Jezebel that she would do to him just as he had done to the prophets of Baal. And Elijah became so discouraged that he fled, uh, took a very lengthy journey right up to the Mount of God. Some have suggested the very cave where God had met with Moses. And he dealt with his servant. And like I say, some preachers are of the opinion that this was Elijah being set aside, so to speak, especially since he was instructed to anoint the man that would be his successor, the prophet Elisha. I can hardly think, however, that a prophet put on the shelf, so to speak, was still close enough to God to call down fire again, not once, but twice, upon those that would pursue him. Well, let's think then for a few moments this morning on the lessons from the prophet who could still call down fire. Lessons from the prophet who could still call down fire. 
And the first lesson, and it's an important one to note, and it does have application for us even at this very day, the lesson is simply this. God is jealous for his own honor. God is jealous for his own honor. Three times in the course of this chapter in 2 Kings, we read the words meant for King Ahaziah, that he would surely die. Verse 4, Now therefore thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Verse 6, There came a man up to meet us and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Boy, the messengers got it right, didn't they? They faithfully delivered to King Ahaziah exactly the message that Elijah had instructed them to give him. And then in verse 16, For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Boy, the message comes across pretty clearly and with great emphasis, doesn't it, as it pertained to King Ahaziah, that for his pursuit of false gods, the Lord would take his life. In each instance, the reason for the sentence of doom was the same. It was because Ahaziah was seeking Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, which was not a god at all. Ahaziah certainly demonstrates, doesn't he, that man's sinful depravity runs in his bloodline. Ahaziah was the son of Ahab, you see. And Ahaziah shows himself to be so much like his father Ahab, Ahab, who had seen beyond all doubt that it was Jehovah that reigned over Israel and Jehovah that reigned over the elements of the earth, surely Ahaziah would have known of the three-and-a-half-year drought that came about by the word of the Lord. How could he not know of the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? in which it was demonstrated most clearly who was God and who wasn't? How could he not know that it was Jehovah that sent the rain that he had withheld at long last? In the theology course that I've been teaching this trimester, we've dealt with a topic that has the title, Proving the Existence of God. And in the course of that class, I pointed out that there's a vast difference between proving and persuading. The Christian can and he should set before the unbeliever the proofs for God ex God's existence. Although keep in mind that in doing so, you're only proving the obvious. Brace yourself, though, 
Don't expect that because you've proven it that the Christ-rejecting sinner will yield to your proofs. In fact, he won't. Ahaziah demonstrates to us, doesn't he, that all the proof in the world won't overcome a sinner's bias against God. And so we find Ahaziah, and this is a point of marvel, even on the man's deathbed. Oh, you would think if ever there was a time when a man would be serious enough to inquire of the true and living God, having known through his father's experiences who that true and living God was, you would think that on a man's deathbed he would be desirous of inquiring after anybody but false gods. One might hope that on his deathbed with the issues of eternity staring him in the face, that Ahaziah would seek out the true and living God. But alas, the carnal mind is enmity against God and will not submit itself to God. The hardness of his heart, however, does not nullify the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in the second commandment, the Lord declares that he is a jealous God, jealous for his own honor. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Oh, if ever there was a man in need of mercy, it would have been Ahaziah. Here he was on his deathbed. Here he was about to go into eternity. And here was a very gracious God before him. But alas, he preferred to stay in the category of those that hate God. And the point I'm now wanting to make is that God is jealous for the honor of his name. At first glance, some may wonder about the jealousy of God. After all, jealousy among those created in God's image is not regarded as a good thing, but as a bad thing. And now we read of God being jealous. Is that a good thing? What you need to keep in mind here is that there is a vast difference between God and his creatures, especially his fallen creatures that have rebelled against him through sin. And when you realize that God is holy and that God is just and that God is abundant in his grace and mercy, then you can see at once that it is good and proper and fulfilling of all righteousness that God would be jealous for his own honor. In the case of God, it's good and right and proper. In the case of sinful man, it is not. And so it falls on you and on me as believers in Jesus Christ to be 
jealous for the honor of God's name as well. Oh, how we ought to be jealous for that name. And when you hear that name used in vain, the very least you ought to do is wince in utter horror and astonishment. And if you know God and know Christ, such jealousy will not be a difficult challenge for you to meet. All you need do is think upon the character of the God you worship and serve, and then think upon your own lost condition, and then think upon what Christ has done for you in dying on the cross for your sins, if you don't find yourself compelled to be jealous for his honor in the light of who he is and what he's done for you, it can only mean that you fall into the same category of hard-hearted sinners as a Hosiah who, like his father, would count God to be his enemy. If there are any under the sound of my voice this morning that fall into that category, how I pray that the Lord will have mercy on your soul and that you'll be convicted of your sins and convinced of the truth of Christ and compelled to flee to him whom to know is life everlasting. So that's the first lesson we may draw from this fiery episode of Elijah. The Lord is jealous for his own honor. May we be jealous for his honor as well. But let's move on then to consider another lesson from this fiery episode of Elijah, which is simply this. Secondly, the Lord protects his servants. The Lord protects his servants. In verses 8 through 10, we read, Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of an hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. The second captain proves himself to be even more obstinate and obnoxious when he adds to his word to Elijah, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. Not only come down, but come down quickly. Do it now. Hurry up, so to speak. I can't help but marvel at the second captain of 50. Didn't he realize what had just happened to the previous captain who had gone ahead of him with his 50? Was he not aware that the prophet had said, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee in thy 50 and there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Didn't that second captain have an inkling of a clue of what had just taken place? Well, I suppose the hard-hearted second captain would have rationalized the same way that critics of God and his word rationalized today, that it must have been merely a tragic coincidence of some kind that the first captain and his 50 were just randomly struck by lightning. Not that God could have had anything to do with it. Not that Elijah could have called fire down. No, it must have been a tragic coincidence. Be that as it may, 
The third captain with his 50 certainly knew better, didn't he? And from this third captain, we may learn that the best way to approach God's word and the best way to approach God's servant, in this case Elijah, is through deep humility and fervent pleas for mercy. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. Verses 13 and 14. And so we find the Lord protecting his servant Elijah from those that would mistreat him. It's easy, I suppose, to read this part of the narrative and wonder how Elijah's courage and confidence in the Lord could have failed him in an earlier moment of time when the wicked Queen Jezebel threatened to take his life following the execution of the 450 prophets of Baal. Where was Elijah's courage then? And the best answer to what may seem to be a dilemma would be to point out that we only stand with the Lord's help and the Lord is pleased at times to make us realize that no man stands in his own strength but only by the grace of God. The disciples of Christ, you may recall, were all very confident following Peter's lead that they would stand by Christ come what may and yet when things became heated and Christ was apprehended, we read how they all fled. And we also read how Peter was challenged by a maid as being among the followers of Christ. There follows the sad account of his three denials of Christ. I don't know him. No, I, I haven't been with him. Oh, it's with good reason that Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But now in 2 Kings chapter 1, we find Elijah taking a stand against the first two captains of 50, and we find the Lord protecting his servant, and then saying to him with regard to the third captain in verse 15, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. Now, it would be a mistake to draw from this example of Elijah the kind of application that reasons that nothing bad or nothing tragic can ever happen to those that follow Christ. Plenty of terrible things have happened to Christians throughout the course of church history. In that great faith chapter found in the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, we have two very contrasting reports given about those who had faith and were faithful to the Lord. So we read of those in verses 33 and 34, who through faith subdued kingdoms, 
wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiance in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. But then there follows a contrasting report regarding others who were also faithful to the Lord. And it says of them, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's in Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 38. And so in either case, whether it be by deliverance in this world or deliverance from this world, the Lord does stand by his own and gives them the needed assistance for whatever they're called upon to endure. In this connection, the promise of Christ himself comes into play in John in chapter 10, verse 27, where the Lord says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And so we find the Lord standing by Paul when all the others had forsaken him. And we find the Lord standing to greet his martyred servant Stephen when the angry mob stoned him to death. And you can be sure, therefore, dear believer in Christ, that Christ will see you through and he'll make sure that you land safely on heaven's shores. That's the meaning, you know, of Christ being our surety. A surety is a guarantor, one who makes good on a pledge. And Christ, in the covenant of redemption with his Father, has taken to himself the responsibility of protecting his people and seeing them safely home. So we read in John 10 and verse 39, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. O oh, Christ will protect you. You have no guarantee that it will be after the pattern that we read in this historical narrative of Elijah, but he will protect you, and he will uphold you, and he will sustain you, and he'll give you the needed grace, the grace that is needed to stand true to him even in the midst of fiery trials and torment, etc. What a blessing to know then that Christ will see us through. This is not to say that there may be times when courage fails us and we start to harbor doubts. 
It seems, doesn't it, that so many of the faithful characters of the Bible went through times of doubt. But what I'm saying now is that doubts notwithstanding, Christ will see us through. So we've covered the lesson of God's jealousy for his honor. And now we've seen the lesson of God's protection for his servants. Let's consider one final lesson, which is this. The Lord vindicates his, his word. The Lord vindicates his word. Okay? We saw in my introductory remarks that the initial message that Elijah gave to King Ahaziah's servants was the same word that Elijah himself delivered in person to the king when at last he came before the king. For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Verse 16. As amazing as it may seem, Ahaziah evidently thought that by apprehending the prophet, he could somehow alter what had been declared by the prophet. In a sense, this is nothing new. Right up to this present hour, we find the schemes of men seeking to alter either what God has said or what God has created. And in the end, however, God's word does come to pass. So we read in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, For as the rain cometh down, and snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God's word will not fail. It has not failed, nor will it ever fail. It will accomplish exactly what God intends for it to accomplish. And if you know that and you appreciate that, then you will be convinced that there is no such thing as an empty or vain witness for God. Every time you sow the good seed of God's word, you can be sure that that word will not be sown in vain. Okay? That certainly turned out to be the case, didn't it, with King Ahaziah. The word pronounced his doom, and sure enough, his doom came. And just as God's word tells the story of mankind from start to finish, so will it come to pass exactly as God tells it. It will be God's kingdom that prevails in the end. It will be Christ's cause that wins. And the world in its present state will be done away with. And it will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth, wherein will dwell righteousness. Judgment Day will come as well. That's not a fictitious story that's given to us in the Bible. 
all the dead, small and great, will be gathered together before that great white throne. The reality of hell, which so many today deny, will prove to be very real. There will be those who, like Ahaziah, had hardened their hearts toward the word of God and toward Christ himself. On that occasion, they will bow before the Lord and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only their confession will not be to their salvation on that occasion. It will be to their damnation. I must say, by the grace of God, I look forward to that day when every follower of every false God will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Every Muslim, every Muslim leader, every false prophet, every false pope, they will all make that common confession, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder today, have you made that confession? This is the day to make it. Whether or not you make it today or whether or not you wait for judgment day, the truth of God's word will stand that that confession will be made. It'll be made by all. If you make the confession today and it comes from a heart that believes in Christ, that salvation, that, that confession can be made to your salvation. If you wait for judgment day to make the confession then the day of grace will have been sinned away and it'll be too late. And the confession will be made to your condemnation. This narrative of God's word coming to Ahaziah teaches us and warns us that God's word will be vindicated. The promises of salvation will be applied to those who have seen their sin, confessed their sin, and called on Christ and the warnings of everlasting judgment will come to pass as well. And so we have these three lessons from the narrative of more fire, so to speak. God is jealous for his honor. God watches over and protects his own and will see them safely through. And God vindicates his word. It's too bad that Ahaziah failed to learn those lessons. He certainly had time to. He had witnessed and had heard so much about God. And even though his father Ahab may not have made much of it, the truth was that God had been very gracious and long-suffering to King Ahab. We've seen that over the course of our studies. And yet even in spite of it, Ahab's heart remained hard and so did, unfortunately, the heart of his son. I wonder this morning, are these lessons from this fiery episode of Elijah lessons that you have learned? How would you be classified this morning? Are you among those that hate God and seek to suppress his word? Or are you among those that love God and love Christ and believe in the power of his word? How I hope and pray that you'll be like those believers in Thessalonica who when they heard the word, they took it to be the word of God and not the word of men. 
And that word worked effectually in their hearts to draw them to Christ. Oh, may that be the case for each one under the sound of my voice this morning. May that word prove itself to be a living and powerful word to your soul, drawing you to Christ every time you read it. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, bring this meeting to a close. We thank you that thy word will not return to thee void. O Lord, may that word accomplish much good in the hearts of all who have heard it just now. And for those who will hear thy word in the coming days, O Lord, bring many to a saving knowledge of thyself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.